Wednesday or Tuesday evening, chap. I'm ahead of myself. Do you think it'll snow? Uh, just outside chance. Yeah, okay. Well, that's kind of what I think. As for me and my house, we will obey the Lord, won't we? Uh, it's our privilege to have Dr. Tom King as the preacher of the evening. Uh, I anticipate these chapels. I look forward to them when he preaches. So I want us to begin with a prayer that will appear on the screen. <laughs> it's not power, it's cooperation. <clears throat> Reading of the word will be from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. And from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Please be seated. Throughout history, humanity has been concerned with issues of etiology. Etiology is defined as the study of causes, origins, and reasons. Normally we think of ancient pagan societies being obsessed with questions about their origins and fabricating myths to explain where they came from and the character of their gods. Yet even in our scientific and information age we still ask etiological questions. We don't know all the answers needed to explain our existence. Humanity continues to struggle with the age-old quandaries such as, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Where do we come from? Will we ever be able to explain the mysteries of love and life? The epitome of such inquiry begins in childhood. Recall the infamous series of why questions. Mommy, why does daddy rub your neck every night? Well, because it feels good. Why? Because otherwise mommy's neck hurts. Why? Because mommy's neck is injured. Because mommy was in an accident. Because another car hit mommy's car. Why? Because the roads were slippery. Why? Because it was snowing. Why? That's enough, dear. Mommy's tired of asking, answering questions. Yes, some of you know that game. Then there are questions which call for more complex answers. Why is the sky blue? Why is daddy's hair turning white? do birds fly? And of course the one all parents dread, where do babies come from? <laughs> Our oldest daughter had a unique way of communicating such queries. She always expressed them in terms of what something will do to you. She would ask, what do lions do to you? What does an earthquake do to you? What does spinach do to you? What do snowflakes do to you? As Christians, we often take our etiological questions to God and His Word. 
The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions. However, God has revealed responses to some of the important questions concerning our existence. We call the Bible his revelation to us. This revelation from God begins with an account which addresses such questions as, how does God respond to our disobedience? Or as my daughter would say, what does sin do to you? Or where does sin come from? As if anticipating such questions, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin and death spread to all because all sinned. In the midst of a larger discussion concerning sin and righteousness, Paul points to the entrance of sin through one man and claims that the consequence of death spread to all because all participated in sin. So who started it? And what are the consequences? The beginning of God's revelation in the Bible addresses these concerns. That is, the genesis of divine revelation communicates to us the character and consequences of sin and God's response to human disobedience. The account in Genesis 3 begins with a conversation between the first woman and one of the wild animals which God created. The crafty serpent phrased a question to the woman in such a way as to imply that God restricted the first human pair from eating of any tree in the garden. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman rightly responded and corrected the serpent by stating, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. At this point it appears the serpent has directed the discussion to the subject of his original intent, that is, the forbidden fruit. The serpent refutes the woman's statement with three claims. First, you surely will not die. Second, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And third, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What appears a little frightening on the surface reading of the text is that all three of the serpent's claims are exactly what happens. After the couple eats the forbidden fruit, they do not immediately fall over dead. And verse 7 proclaims, the eyes of both of them were opened. And later in verse 22, God himself announces, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. This is a reminder that the greatest deception is that which is always mixed with truth. That's what makes it so deceptive. So what does it mean to be like God, knowing good and evil? What's so bad about knowing the difference between good and evil? In fact, aren't we supposed to distinguish between good and evil? I believe the key to the concern here is the combination of equality with God and knowing good and evil. That is, the issue here is not just the simple knowledge of good and evil, but it's determining for oneself 
what is good and what is evil, as if one were God. The temptation is that of becoming one's own God, deciding for oneself what is good and what is bad. It means being my own boss, becoming my own God, and deciding what is right and wrong for me, regardless of how it impacts others. It's a condition of independence, self-centeredness, and hubris. Unfortunately, such a condition is readily advanced in a pluralistic and relative society like our own, in which everyone should be considered as right, and no view should be insulted as if it were wrong. Everyone is his or her own God, free to determine what is good and what is evil. It's striking that the image for this temptation is that of grasping fruit from a tree. If this first couple grasps the fruit, they become equal with God. It's striking because the one man who was indeed equal with God did not consider it something to be grasped. Recall the words in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The call of our Savior Jesus Christ is not to consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather to empty oneself as a servant in surrender and obedience to God. So what are the consequences of this first sin? What does sin do to you? God's revelation in Genesis 3 continues to communicate to us. After the act of disobedience and the eyes of the first couple are opened, the text states, they knew they were naked and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The first few times I read this, I wondered what in the world does being naked have to do with anything going on here? Why is it all of a sudden an issue when it didn't mean anything before? The concern over being naked, of course, recalls the concluding statement in chapter 2 of Genesis, which states the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Again, I wonder, what does that have to do with anything in chapter 2? The context of Genesis chapter 2 suggests that the statement regarding nakedness serves as a summary image of the trust and harmony depicted in the original state of creation. The creation account in chapter 2 describes God fashioning a world of interdependence and unity. As God provides, we're given a picture of creation in which the ground is watered by a mist, a man is made from the dust of the ground, 
The ground is cultivated by the man. Trees provide food for humans and animals. And a companion is created so man would not be alone. Everything is in harmony and functions with interdependence. The ground, garden, and trees need the water. The humans and animals need the fruit from the trees. The garden and the ground need the man to cultivate them. And the man and the woman need each other for companionship. And all are dependent on God for life and sustenance. This is the picture that is summed up by the strange statement, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Their nakedness without shame reflects the trust, the harmony, the innocence evident between the first couple and throughout creation. This beautiful picture is broken in chapter 3 when the couple sins. Their eyes are opened and they become aware of their nakedness. They sow fig leaves, make coverings for themselves. Their desire to hide and to cover their nakedness becomes an image of mistrust and disharmony. It is, after all, an effective image. In a world of mistrust, consider What's the most vulnerable position in which we humans can find ourselves? I can be insulted, slandered, abused, attacked, and beaten, but at the very least, I find some measure of dignity and comfort if I am covered and at least clothed. The most humiliating, undignified, and vulnerable state I can imagine is being naked with absolutely no stitch of material between me and the rest of the world. When there is alienation and mistrust in our world, consider the tendency of the human creature. We put up barriers, fig leaves, clothing, doors, walls, fences, borders, landmines, tanks, nuclear weapons, all kinds of blockades. An old professor of mine, upon mourning the plight of our fallenness, protested, if only we could learn to trust each other again and drop our fig leaves. I'm afraid we're beyond that. Besides hiding and covering up, the atmosphere of mistrust and alienation is evident in the couple's responses to God's questions after they sinned. To the man, God inquires, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat? The man eventually confesses with these words, the woman who you gave me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. The Lord turns to the woman and asks, what is this you have done? And she confesses in a like manner, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The picture of brokenness is complete. The man and woman have pushed away everyone of significance in the story with blame and accusation. God, it's your fault for giving me the woman. It's the woman's fault for giving me the fruit. And it's the serpent's fault for deceiving me. 
the man and the woman cast blame and push away responsibility. The one character in this account who takes up responsibility and begins to act to deal with the situation is God. God who has provided paradise and equipped it with harmony and unity. God who is innocent and just. God who is gracious and good. God is the one who picks up the broken pieces which his creatures have cast down. I can't help but recall the famous trial of Captain Kirk in Star Trek VI. He's captured by the fearsome Klingons and put on trial for killing the Klingon ambassador. Of course, we, the audience, have seen the truth in the film, and we know that Kirk is innocent. He's the victim of an elaborate setup and conspiracy. The false accusations, the circumstantial evidence, they're all too obvious, and we're confident that the mockery of this trial will not be able to condemn the great captain, who just two films earlier literally saved the planet Earth. The Klingon prosecutor, brilliantly played by Christopher Plummer, Captain Von Trapp himself in Klingon skin, presents all kinds of manipulative arguments aimed at indicting Kirk. We easily see through the conspiracy until, until the prosecutor levels the fatal question. Kirk as captain of the Enterprise, are you not responsible for the actions of your crew who serve under your command? Suddenly our confidence in the captain's vindication is shaken to the core. Knowing the character of our captain, we tremble as we hear his slow and committed response. As captain of the Enterprise, I am responsible for the actions of my crew who serve under my command. In a similar manner, in Genesis 3, God takes responsibility for the actions of his creatures. In verse 15, God takes responsibility for putting enmity between the serpent and the woman. In verse 16, God takes responsibility for greatly multiplying the woman's pain in childbirth. Not only in Genesis, but in other texts, God takes responsibility for the actions of his creatures. In Exodus, God takes responsibility for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In Samuel, God takes responsibility for sending an evil spirit upon King Saul. In all of these cases, the larger context makes it clear the people involved brought their evil circumstances on themselves. And yet, God is the one who takes responsibility when his creatures deny it. The greatest manifestation of this wondrous grace is seen in Jesus Christ as on the cross once again, God takes responsibility for the actions of his creatures. It doesn't mean that people are let off the hook and spared the circumstances of their wrongful actions. However, neither are they abandoned to suffer alone without hope of restoration and ultimately resurrection. As early as our text in Genesis 3, 
God begins to work to reconcile the brokenness introduced by the first couple. It needs to be clarified that God's speech in verses 14 to 19 does not constitute a curse upon humanity. A close look at the terminology reveals that only the serpent and the ground are cursed in this divine speech. The rest of the speech serves to clarify the state of the relationships which have resulted from the actions of the man and the woman. At first glance, I again wonder what these particular issues have to do with what's happening in the text. That is, what does hostility between the woman and the serpent, increasing pain in childbirth, and thorns and thistles have to do with eating forbidden fruit? Given the context of the relationships, the answer begins to emerge. These circumstances are representative of the larger condition of brokenness that has been brought about. Recall the context which has been created by the actions of the first pair. Brokenness and alienation brought upon by blame, accusation, mistrust, these constitute the atmosphere which defines the current state of relationships. Given such circumstances, the great harmony, the interdependence pictured at the end of chapter 2 is clearly undone. Accordingly, the enmity between the woman and the serpent reflects the disruption of good-natured relationships between humanity and the animal kingdom. Likewise, the struggle and toil to cultivate the ground in order to extract food reflects the disruption of a mutually supportive relationship between the ground and humanity. This picture of alienation between humanity and animals and even the ground highlights the truth that the fallenness of our world impacts all of creation. Thus in Romans, Paul proclaims, the whole creation groans and suffers in the context of our fallen world. Most critical is the disruption of the relationship between the man and the woman. Notice the Lord proclaims that pain in childbirth will increase. Thus, God doesn't invent pain in childbearing for the first time as if it was originally a comfortable and pleasant experience. Ideally, a couple will provide for each other great love and comfort and support during the wondrous event of childbirth, thereby decreasing the pain which is natural to the process. However, given these circumstances in Genesis 3, that normal level of pain will increase. That is, in the context of mistrust, brokenness, and alienation, in which men and women have pushed each other away, loving support will obviously be lacking without the love and the trusting relationship between a husband and a wife. The wife must experience the work of birthing a child by herself, alone, isolated, without the comfort of a caring spouse. That is why God states that the woman's desire will be for her husband. Unfortunately, in this state of broken, brokenness, his response will be to rule over her rather than comfort her. 
Under such circumstances, clearly the pain of childbirth increases. The experience of bearing children, which should be a foundational bonding experience in the life of any couple, serves as a central image here of what brokenness looks like. It's critical that we understand the function of this speech from God. As one of my undergraduate professors put it, it's not a prescription of what must be. Rather, it's a description of what has come about. Through this speech, God identifies the consequences of the couple's sin. This does not mean that God intends for life to carry on this way. On the contrary, God begins the work of reconciliation to correct this state of brokenness. Thus, it's a huge mistake in the church when we glean from this speech such misguided doctrines as, for example, the one which claims men are divinely called to rule over women. Instead, we need to recognize we're called to join God in the work of correcting the brokenness reflected in these images. So after clarifying the situation, God continues the work of reconciliation by making garments for the couple. This affirms we're beyond the state of simply dropping our fig leaves. Next, the Lord drives the couple out of the Garden of Eden. The rationale for this, according to the text, is that they might eat from the tree of life and live forever. Clearly, God doesn't want the couple to live forever in that state of brokenness. It becomes evident that the expulsion from the garden is actually an act of salvation. Accordingly, it's significant that the tree of life becomes accessible to humanity once again in the vision of the book of Revelation. In the last chapter of the Bible, after the work of reconciling the world is complete, humanity is again given access to the tree of life and eternity. So what are the lessons we should derive from the account of the fall of humanity? Allow me to suggest just a few to get us started. When sin emerges in our lives, we should resist the tendency to blame and to deny. Instead, we need to follow the exhortations of God's Word which call us to confession and repentance. Furthermore, we need to recognize that mistrust and self-concern and the consequences of broken relationships are not intended to be the norm of our existence. Instead, we're called to join God's work of reconciliation and seek to correct the brokenness in our world. It means, for example, that it is good for a husband to comfort his wife and seek to decrease the pain in childbirth. Of course, this is just the start of a larger concern to pursue relationships characterized by humility, love, grace, and kindness towards all people. Finally, our life outside of Eden should not be considered a curse from God, 
but rather it reflects a period of grace during which we have the opportunity to join God's great work of reconciling the world until the time comes when the tree of life is available once again and the promise of eternity is fulfilled. Our Lord, take us forth as your instruments of reconciliation for the world. Empower us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.